Hello and welcome to the IBMS Biopod. I'm Rob. And this is James. These biopods will immerse you in the profession's disparate disciplines. From cytopathology and haematology to virology and microbiology. Each month we'll bring you exclusive interviews, behind the scenes chit chat and maybe even a drop of science. So put down your pets, move away from the microscope and get ready for a biopod deep dive. Okay, so Alan Wilson, who joins us today on the IBMS Biopod, is the IBMS president and lead biomedical scientist in cellular pathology and advanced practitioner in cervical cytology at Monklands Hospital. Uh, hello, Alan. Hello, Rob. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks. How are you? Not too bad. Not too bad. So let us just jump straight in, Alan, and um, tell me how did you get involved and interested in biomedical science in the first place? I've always been fascinated by um, laboratory medicine and science, and that's why I majored in was at school. I was, I'm one of the old guards, so I don't have a primary degree, which may, may, may surprise some people, but I went straight from school into what was the process there of becoming, uh, well, what we weren't even called biomedical sciences then, but that process involved just simply finding a job from school and doing gear release through college. And then once you've done the, the old style ONC, HNC as we called them, and then you did your professional institute exams and became a fellow of the institute. So I worked through that for about six years in Glasgow and, and emerged with my professional qualifications. So and did a lot of learning. And it, it, it's kind of interesting now to compare that to where we are now, where that's what we're almost going back to a little bit, full going round full circle with the apprenticeship schemes that we're now trying to introduce. And, Doing, looking at data lease options rather than uh, purely relying on graduates or coming out of university. I think it's important to have both options uh, available to us. And I certainly was, was one of the success stories of the, the old way of getting into biomedical science. But science has always been one of my fascinations, always my interest, and that's what that's what then dictated my choice of courses at school. And, and why do you think we're moving kind of back full circle a little bit? Is that more to do with vocational skills and kind of hands-on abilities is it a move towards that over more kind of university-based skills What's, what do you think is driving that move out yeah i think it's part of that i think there's a part is a recognition that necessarily some of this a lot of what we do is learned vocationally it's learned on the job um, and especially probably in, in the area that i work in in, in cellular pathology and in, in and in cytology where a lot of it is is basically down to morphological interpretation, looking down the microscope and manual skills. And a lot of that really, you can't really teach terribly well at university. It really just depends on doing it for a period of time and learning those skills and picking up that experience. I think there's always going to be room for both routes, for the graduates that come in um, and for something that's more vocational. But I think, I think the other issue is finding at the moment laboratories are so pressed and delivering the service that delivering the placements for university students that you need is coming more and more challenging. And certainly here and in other, other, other uh, laboratories, uh, we are now inundated with uh, placement requests from a variety of places, whether that be universities, from schools, and people looking for that work experience. And we could accommodate that maybe a, a few years ago, but now we are now just uh, running just all we need to just deliver the best service. It's much more difficult to accommodate those placements. And obviously, if you've got someone in training for a longer period of time, you can get some 
um, almost you can still use them creatively or constructively within the lab while they're in training if they're doing vocational courses. So I think there's a variety of um, elements driving this change. Mm. And what does your what does your day job involve when you're not being the president of the IBMS? What, what does your how what's your day to day job look like, Alan? Is there a, is there a typical day? I would like to think there was a typical today, but at the moment there really isn't a typical day. Um, I'm slightly unusual in that I carry these two titles that you read out at the beginning. So I, I manage the cellular pathology lab within, um, within Lanarkshire and Weir, but that that's also involves working across the three acute sites in my patch. So I manage some of the services across a fairly wide geographic, geographic area. But if I manage cellular pathology uh, and all the aspects of that, but I also have a consultant level role in cervical cytology. So I, I report um, uh, cervical cytology cases and I have uh, discussions with clinicians, with uh, MDTs and invasive cancer audit meetings. So, uh, and that's unusual at this level. Usually uh, people who are managing at the level I'm at don't have that clinical role as well. There aren't that many of us that do that. So my day can be, I can set out with a very empty page in my diary and sometimes it can just change dramatically, and especially now as we've started doing COVID testing within uh, within the pathology lab. And again, that's a that's a new territory for us. So we're learning what that means, and it's a whole new set of experiences that we're dealing with public health and notification of the disease. And um, so that's been an interesting experience for us as well. So I, I would like to think I do have a typical day. I would like to hope I get a typical day, but it really happens. With, it's often around about crisis management or firefighting and trying to fit the other elements of the job in. I do try and ring fence in time for the reporting because that does take time, the, the quiet time for concentration and looking and uh, taking time to do that and try and avoid interruptions through that period. But that's not always possible. So I try and do that maybe first thing in the morning when I come in, I tend to start early. So I'll come in and I'll do that early on when there's less interruption. Yeah. and. Um you, you, you talked about the, the uh, COVID-19 testing that you started doing. How has that gone? What kind of testing are you doing? Has it had a, a big impact on a stretched workforce? And we have the, the, the platforms that are capable of doing molecular testing. Um, and then when COVID came and the company that supplied those platforms ended up developing a test for COVID when we could use those platforms for doing COVID testing as well. So we're, what we're trying to do is balance the HPV testing as part of the cycle screening program with COVID testing. Um, and at the moment it's working because the cycle screening program was suspended in Scotland because of COVID. Um, so we have got capacity within those machines to do COVID testing. But we're going to start doing screening again actively for a routine uh, women and routine recall in, in September. But once the numbers pick up, then it'll become more of a challenge for us to do both. Um, and at the moment, we can do both. Also, we have some staffing capacity because of the reduction in our histopathology workload because of the cancellation of elective surgery. But once that starts again, then we will be juggling this very complicated process of juggling histopathology. COVID testing, HPV testing, uh, and that will be very challenging. I, I'm really grateful to the staff that took this on because the, the COVID testing, we asked for volunteers for that. 
and I'm really grateful for the, the staff within my laboratory that uh, we have over 30 people volunteer to do this work, which is over and above what we already do, and we have to train them in new areas. But I think they're, they're enjoying it, it's a new challenge for them, it's something new, and molecular testing is the future anyway, so by training people in molecular techniques, I think it prepares them for uh, other molecular tests that will emerge uh, over the next uh, 10 to 20 years. Yeah. And um, speaking of juggling, Alan, last time I saw you, I think it was at IBMS Congress, which would have been about six months, maybe a bit less, maybe three or three months. Yeah, yeah, September last year, end of September last year. Yeah, which was a, a good few months before anyone knew what COVID-19 was. And it was when you knew you were going to be the president come January. Um, if you if you knew now what the situation was, COVID nineteen, how busy you would be, would you have still thought, "Oh, great, I'd like to be the IBMS president"? Or has it been a rather different few kind of a, a rather different year so far than you expected it to be? I mean, like most people could never have predicted what we will face over the first half of this year. Would have probably, I mean, it's been a very interesting year, and I've learned a lot uh, from the COVID. Um, and uh, probably if I. I probably would not have altered my decision. It was something I, I was very keen to do to become president of the institute. Um, it, it's the pinnacle of what I'm doing. I'll, I'll be retired probably within about five years. So I, I viewed this as just something that I, I would really like to have done before I retire. And, and it only comes along very rarely if you get the opportunity to represent your professional yeah. body at the highest level. So if I hadn't done it last year, it would probably have never have happened. So, and there were a variety of other things that maybe this year was not the best year because of what we were going to be doing. But uh, again, I just thought that if I don't do it now, uh, the opportunity might not, come, might not come along again. So I decided to go for it. But yeah, it's been a very, very steep learning curve, especially the media work that we've done. I mean, I, I, I did do one day's media training with the Institute um, last year, uh, which has prepared me a little bit. Uh, rather ironically, I was due to do it again in March and it was cancelled because of COVID. Um, <laughs> But um, yeah, so it's, it's been remarkable and I think I've learned as much as what to, to, what, what to say to the media as what not to say to the media sometimes. So it's, it's been an interesting experience dealing with them. Having said that, I've learned a lot from them and I think it, it, it's something I didn't fully understand that it's a two-way working relationship to a certain extent. You can, if you get issues that you think are there and you can't get the information from them, that's what the journalists are trained to do. So you can say, well, we think this is an issue and they'll go away and do the, do the digging and you can uh, feed in that dialogue and equally then you can then inform them of the, our, our position and our, uh, uh, from, as from an institute perspective on the, the COVID issues as well. So it's been a really interesting experience and, 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 and retrospect, I, I don't regret a minute of it. It's been, it's been really interesting work, although it's been an occasion very fraught and stressful. I remember one particular day where I think I did four back-to-back -back television interviews uh, two of them live to camera and two of them recorded in the space of about less than two hours. So that kind of stuff, it, it, it's, um, yeah, you learn very quickly when you're doing it to that level. Uh, did you lack enthusiasm on, the, on those final couple? After I've spoken to people for a little while, when I'm saying the same things, I'm just kind of, poof, by the end of it. They all had different angles, actually. I mean, they all came from it in slightly different ways. Some of it was repetitive, but in many ways, they all, as the media do, it depends on the stories they're running. They come with particular at different angles. So no particular angle was the same, although I must admit they did all merge after a while and that was one of the issues. Somebody would phone and say, you remember the discussion we had? Well, 
actually, no, I didn't because, you know, I, I couldn't distinguish him in my head from the I'd had the day before, the two I'd had the day before, so yeah. the day before that. So it became quite difficult to separate who had said what to uh, in the media. But, um, but yeah, it was a really interesting experience. And I hope what we've managed to do is to increase the profile of not just the Institute, but our members and actually blow away, um, actually lift that cover over what we do. Because I think that's always been one of the issues that we've grappled with as Institute is trying to um, lift up that cover and let people see what we do and understand a little bit more of what we do um, and the stresses and strains and what we deliver to, to patients. And this, I think, has allowed us to do that. And I think there's more work to be done on that front. And I mean, how do you think biomedical scientists and or, or, or you know, IBMS members were previously viewed by the general public? Was there, was there a set view or was there just no conception of what the profession did? I think there's very little conception of what we do. There's this very vague idea of a laboratory and I think we're viewed uh, as a bit of a black box. Uh, and I think it's not that surprising because I think some of our um, other healthcare professionals view us in the same way, actually. I think we need to get out more. And, and, and get out and actually con converse with clinicians and with patient-facing people and actually educate them on what we actually do because I think it's becoming apparent from this not only do the public not know what we do but some of the other health professionals don't, don't understand what we do either. So I think there wasn't much of a perception of what we actually do. We just do tests and we actually try and explain to them now what we do. I, I think there is a more of an understanding of the actual complexity of what we do. And I think as part of this, we've had a few people around looking around the lab and especially cellular pathology, we're very visual and mm. I think we were senior management managers around. And the, actually, the, I would use the word, they enjoy the visit because they can actually see and, and we get very intelligent questions. And I think nothing helps more than actually just educating your own, your own managers about actually what you do and showing them what you do rather than them just dealing with, uh, with you in the kind of, as a remote, just well, that's just the laboratory, just pathology. Uh, and what are the benefits of that? And why is it good for the public and other healthcare professionals to have a better understanding of what biomedical scientists do? I think two thought there was a couple of reasons, but the main one is actually if they engage with us, then we can more deliver what they require. And I think that's what those of us, I mean, I'm relatively fortunate view working in cervical screening and screening programs. And actually, even in, in the wider aspects of cytology, we do have patient-facing moments. We do engage with clinicians, and especially in the screening programs. And it's getting that understanding of what we do so we can then know we can, how we can help and how we can adapt uh, to, to changes that are coming. Rather than just hearing about those changes you know, once they're there, the frustration quite often within the laboratories is that we, we know of changes that impact significantly on our workload only when we see odd specimens coming in through the door for the first time and then say, well, what's this? And we go in digging and we say, oh yeah, that was a business case that was submitted, you know, years ago and that's it just being signed off now and no one thought to ask laboratories about the impact of, on it. So it's opening up, maintaining that dialogue with the clinicians, um, I think really helps. And for patients, I think, and, and for uh, the general public, I think it's absolutely pivotal that they understand what we do. And again, they understand the complexities of what we do and what biomedical science is, because it's their samples at the end of the day, um, and they understand therefore the, the, the actual how we fit into that pathway, and we're not just a little black box where you post the sample in and the results fits out the other end. Yeah. And uh, so, <laughs> do you think practices will change 
work practices will change as we hopefully ease our way out of this pandemic. For, for example, at the moment, everyone is, the vast majority of people are very heavily, if not completely lab-based. Do you think there's the capacity and the potential with things like digital pathology to free up where people work from? Or do you think biomedical scientists will always be a profession where they go into the lab every day? I think it really depends a little bit on the work we're doing. I think certainly for when it comes, I think the, the, the obvious advantage to this is I think we will stop moving around sites so much, both locally and uh, even nationally. I think um, we've already discussed this with an IBMS council, but even here, we've already agreed we used to have regular monthly face-to-face -face meetings with all the leads from the various lab disciplines. We're now there, the majority of them are now going to be through um, MST, Microsoft Teams or some other video conferencing. So I think that that's already been been widely accepted that we do not need the level of face-to-face -face testing. I think, however, we do need to maintain certain level of face-to-face -face, uh, meetings. Um, and I think we don't, there's something about that physical face-to-face -face contact that we don't want to lose entirely. Um, and I think we will still need to, to, to maintain that. But I think a significant percentage of the meetings that we have would probably done just as easily. In fact, I would argue more effectively through teams. I think that's what's emerging. Sometimes actually things, projects and project work actually probably works better through frequent short Teams meetings or Skype or Zoom or whatever technology you're using, rather than doing something like monthly face-to-face -face meetings. Uh, and I think so there's a certain element of that. As to the actual physical work people do, I still think, certainly for my main discipline is cellular pathology, that's still very much a manual process and really has to be delivered at, on the bench. And it's difficult to see how most of that can, it can be replaced by remote working. I think there might be some other aspects, more general aspects of our work that could be done remotely, such as the quality management aspects of what we do could probably be done uh, remotely, um, and some of the other managerial aspects of it. But certainly, um, I think um, the, the, for biomedical scientists, I still think the majority will be working uh, within the laboratory. Digital pathology is a good example, and I think that will help going forward. Um, but again, we have to be careful that we don't have people working in diagnostic silos with no contact with, with other clinicians. So there's a role for it and it will come, but I, we need to ensure that there's still a regular contact with A, the rest of the clinical team within the department and also the clinicians that we serve. So are you a believer in this idea that if you put people together, they will do things in a different way than if they're working remotely? Say, the idea of Silicon Valley put all the bright people there in Silicon Valley together and they will create something different and maybe something more innovative and exciting than if they were all working remotely because of the interaction between them. You know, the, the same thing about Francis Crick Institute manual where the idea is put them all together in one building. Do you think if you put, when, when we've got all the people together under one roof, people are working better and more innovatively? I think so. I think that... It depends. What I think it's amazing to be seen whether you could do that through something like video conferencing. And actually, I think you probably could. You need, to, if you're talking of putting these people together in one room, well, could that be a virtual room? Uh, does it need to be a physical uh, environment you're in? And I think certainly, I, I think you've, you've seen people's behavior change um, as they adapt to the use of um, things like MS Teams and, and Skype, these meetings. And I actually think that they're quite effective now and you can see they're so much easier to do 
and I think people, you can do breakout meetings within these uh, these um, technologies now, and actually just the, the ability to ask someone to join a meeting that you think, oh, we forgot someone, or oh, I wonder if they've got an opinion on this, and just invite them if they're available to join at that time. I think that is really helpful, and it's something that you, you don't, you, we didn't have before, ideally, you know, you could, uh, and I, I, had, I happened to wander past our um, education room the other day, and someone was having a conversation about a difficult case with a pathologist in London, just using yeah. Office Teams. So this wasn't digital pathology, it was simply sharing a screen on Office Teams um, and discussing and getting advice on a, on a unique case that they hadn't seen ever from a specialist pathologist in London. So I think there are still aspects of this that we need to learn from, just carefully consider whether they, what advantages they offer but I, I think there are some definite silver linings in this that we do need to uh, think care, carefully how we adapt them and adopt them going forward as actually better than we had before, not just instead of because we can't do things actually we accept that they're actually they, they offer clinical advantages to what we did before. Yeah. And um, in what shape do you think the profession will be at the end of this year? So compared to where it was at the start of this year? Is it, is it good news for the profession in, in a quite horrible way that this pandemic has raised awareness of who biomedical scientists are and what they do and their value? Will the profession be different? Will it feel the same, do you think? I think it's too early to call yet. I think there's too many changes going on. I think certainly by the end of the year, I think there's a, the fatigue will set in because I think there's certain people working around these specialists working in COVID testing. And I go into a few meetings and you can sense the actually the actual exhaustion that's trying to is sitting and people are working incredibly hard uh, in this and incredibly long hours and putting a, you know a huge amount of effort into delivering this service and and I think that you know it's really difficult the stress levels are rising and I don't see that um, changing very much uh, over I think over winter is going to be a very testing time as well probably not the word, wrong word to use but you know what I mean it's probably going to be a very difficult time for us as we as we have flu and, and winter planning to layer upon uh, COVID testing. So I think the stress levels are, are rising among those groups of staff that are delivering this service. So that's on the negative front. And I think we need to adapt. We need to quickly recognize that and do and put support in for those staff. And if that means additional staff to try and help uh, uh, mitigate that risk, then I think we need to do that. I think it's undoubtedly we have raised the profile of the staff and uh, as, as much as no one would have wished this disease and and anyone, I think, it is one of the um, one of the benefits for, for us, and that people have a clearer understanding of not just what we do, but the importance of what we do, and not just the importance of the testing, but the testing pathway. I think has emerged as one of the main issues. So it's not just what we do in the lab; it's how we get samples to the labs, how quickly we turn them around, and how we get those results into clinical systems to allow clinicians to make decisions. And that's coming more and more obvious as we do uh, contact tracing. We're getting those results out quickly and recognizing the, the potential of an outbreak is, is very important. So lots of things um, going forward. As to other changes, I think the other thing that's causing us some concern is the uh, who does the testing. So the emergence of the lighthouse labs is obviously an issue for us and, and I think um, is we, we clearly recognised there was a need for those lighthouse labs. I think we would not manage the capacity that we required for COVID testing if we didn't have uh, the COVID the lighthouse labs in some format. 
I think our concern is that we, we, we have what we've created is two testing streams and we need to work hard, I think, to merge those testing streams so that we, we don't have this um, lack of transparency about what's happening in the Lighthouse Labs so we clearly understand what they're doing and what the roles of the respective labs is. At the moment, we don't have that. And I think that is something we're working very hard to try and achieve so that we can effectively create one testing strategy uh, for, 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 for the public in, in the UK. And, and finally, on a possibly depressing note to end, at the moment, we've got deaths at quite a nice low level, but we've got a number of people uh, identified as having coronavirus just kind of starting to gradually creep up at the moment. Is that, are we working towards a second wave, as has happened with many countries across Europe due to the easing of restrictions, or am I being really hopeful and thinking maybe we've just tested more people? I'm optimistic that we've probably avoided it. I mean, if you look at the, in fact, the example today, we've moved from seven to ten days for isolation. Uh, for people that are symptomatic and that will cause some concern and, and will impact on individuals but actually I think it is what we need to be doing we need to be reacting to the science as it emerges and changing and some of that will be extremely inconvenient for people uh, but I think we just have to live with that at the moment because up till now we seem to have just done uh, the outbreak seems to have followed what's happening in Europe so the pattern of that outbreak seems to have followed what's happening in Europe whereas I think if we can act quickly now um, and put additional steps in now, and that seems to be what's happening now, um, then we might avoid the possibility of what's happening, uh, effectively mirroring what's happening in, the, in, 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 Europe, in some of the European countries, particularly Spain at the moment, where there are considerable outbreaks. So I'm hopeful we can do that. And I think it's also happening to see on a political front that we seem now to be taking decisions more across the UK, across the four nations, rather than as making different strategic decisions uh, across the country. And that was never going to be very effective as we don't have obviously clear borders between the various four nations. So I think that's really happened to see that and to see everyone making the same cautious report because at the moment cautious approach, I think at the moment that's what we need to do to be cautious and if we are that, if we do put in those steps we can hopefully avoid that second wave. We won't avoid outbreaks, there will be outbreaks of this disease as we go forward, we can't avoid them but we seem to be getting slightly better at identifying them and dealing with them and we need to learn from that and hopefully improve how we're dealing with their future um, um, outbreaks. Good stuff. Um, Alan, I'm going to move you on to our quick fire rounds at the end. So we've got okay. first round is overrated, underrated or correctly rated. So I'll okay. say something and you tell me how you think it's rated. Uh, lab coats, are they overrated, underrated or correctly rated? Well I think underrated, I think is a, we should be using them more often I think than we do and I think there's a trend particularly among some to, uh, to actually stop using or wear other, other attempts of uh, protective clothing. But I think lab coats should be worn by laboratory staff. Good stuff. Social media. Oh, vastly overrated. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan. I don't participate and, and I think it's, um, there'll become a time where we will regret the extent of which we've adopted social media. So I think that there's some obvious benefits, but I think that in me, the way, the way we are at the moment, I think there are more disadvantages than advantages to social media. Yeah. Uh, Zoom, I think we've kind of covered this, but, but Zoom and... Uh... Zoom and like, I wouldn't say Zoom, but others, yes, I'm, I'm, 
particularly Zoom and MS, MS Teams or, or, or Skype, yeah, I, I, I'm a fan actually, I'm becoming more of a fan of up to a point. I've made the phrase, I've used the phrase recently, death by Teams or death by Skype. Mm. And I think we are getting close to that now. I think we have previously was death by email when too many people were, you know, you basically all you had to do in a day or all you could do in a day was try and clear your inbox um, and difficult to do anything else. Uh, and I think we're getting a little bit like that. So although it's a very useful strategy to use uh, um, the video conferencing, I think we have to get around the possibility of instead of making a decision, somebody will just call for a Skype call or a Zoom call. Um, so I think we, there'll be a balancing at the moment. It's very good. I'm hoping there'll be a balance where we can use it where it's most effective and stop it where it's possibly not required. Uh, keeping up to date with the news, overrated, underrated or correctly rated? Uh, oh, probably. I, I'm a fan. I do. I'm a bit of a news. Uh, I constantly keep up. So I, I think I would say it's possibly underrated. And I, I try to sample as widely from the various news media as I can, um, um, and rather than just hook into one. Um, I'm slightly suspicious of those who get the news from particularly podcasts that they pick themselves. It tends to give to often a one-dimensional or just link into those areas that they're interested in. And I tend to try and listen to a, a variety of news inputs that uh, challenge me and maybe I'm necessarily what I necessarily agree with so that I get a broader aspect of what's happening out there. So I, I think it's probably underrated. Uh, face masks, the medical rather than the cosmetic. Well, yes, I, I think there's a definite now. Yes, I think we need to be using face masks and I think we need to be using widely. Um, and publicly, and I know we already have them in public transport and other public areas. I've noted, I think it was, I think it was in Spain I was looking at where they're actually using them even just in all public streets. So basically any public areas, not just those that are in shops or in restaurants and other areas. But I think it's, um, we used to, when you think how we used to mock them when we saw certain tourists wandering about London with them in other areas not that long ago, now look where we are, where it's now become the standard item of wear. And I think use of face masks is going to be with us for some time. And I think the correct use of face masks will reduce the likelihood of this disease spreading. And finally, night shifts, overrated, underrated, or correctly rated? Probably the wrong person to ask since I've never done a night shift. So I would definitely say, I would say they're definitely overrated, but essential in some areas. I can see where they are. Um, but I, I think it should only be used when absolutely required, I think, because it's a very, difficult way to work. Um, I, 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 I do have some friends who work night shift constantly. I can see the impact on them um, and the domestic life. So I, I think in general it's overrated, but I can see the essential need for them in some areas. Brilliant. And the last round, we've got a quick fire round, which where I'll ask you a question, the first response that comes into your head, but feel free to expand if you'd like to. Okay. Uh, what's been your entertainment of choice during lockdown? My grandchildren. <laughs> uh, visit shops or order online? Visit shops. Countryside or city? Oh, countryside, definitely, yes. Uh, what have you missed the most during lockdown? 
up until relatively recently, seeing um, and uh, and playing with my grandchildren. Previously, I could only see them from Skype and various other things, but actually seeing them, that actually being able to, to, to actually just pick them up and give them a cuddle has probably been my biggest miss. And my football team as well. I must admit, I've missed the football. Yeah. And finally, when you are not working, what do you like to do? What's your, what's your ideal day? My ideal do. I like to, I would, I'd like to go out for a long cycle. I miss, again, I don't have the time at the moment. I still commute to work by cycle where I can. And actually, that's another plus from the potentially from this. And because I'm not traveling around as much, either nationally or locally, I've been able to cycle in um, uh, back and forward to work quite a bit. And the roads are much, have been up until relatively recently been much quieter. So I like to cycle. I, I like to read a lot. Um, um, and I, I'm getting into things such as I, I have an interest in doing things like painting and other arts. That's something I'd like to pick up when I retire. So I'm starting to pick that up a little bit as well. Um, and again, when I'm not when I'm not working, things back. Uh, I do just really like um, relaxing with the grandkids if they're around. Brilliant, Alan. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thanks, Rob. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. And don't forget, this can be used for your CTD. See you next month for another Biopod. This is James and Rob signing off. Bye.